And a good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. You know, we are in the midst of uh, a lot of reevaluating of what uh, is happening within American Catholicism. Uh, It seems to me the silver lining in all of these uh, conflicts that have marked uh, the church since the turn of the millennium, uh, dealing with the problems within the uh, priesthood and the episcopacy, the silver lining in all of this is the co-responsibility of the laity. Uh, the lay faithful have been responding like uh, I've never seen before. They've been galvanized to take co-responsibility uh, for the church uh, in a way that I've never seen. Of course, it's manifesting itself in many, many, many different ways. But uh, people are beginning to realize that by virtue of baptism, they are called and gifted uh, to build up the body of Christ. And um, they're expecting uh, our priests and bishops uh, to certainly consecrate the Eucharist so that they can feed uh, on the holy food and then consecrate the world. Join me right now to talk about the importance of sharing the gospel and sharing the impact the gospel has had on our own lives is Kevin Cotter. He's executive director of The Amazing Parish. He has served as senior director of curriculum at Focus, uh, where he worked for 11 years. He earned his uh, bachelor's degree in religious studies and philosophy from Benedictine College, a master's in sacred scripture from the Augustine Institute, and he's author of Called, Becoming an Everyday Disciple in a Post-Christian World. Kevin, it's great to have you here. Thank you. Thanks so much, Hal. Great to be here with you today. Let's talk uh, a little bit about your book in the setting in which your book has been published. Um, Anybody, anyone who writes or speaks is always thinking about who's going to read and who's going to hear. What's the audience you're looking to address with this book? Yeah, you know, I love the way you set up uh, just our segment here today with talking about that. We're just called as laity to evangelize, you know, by our very baptisms. Each Catholic is called to share their faith. And so I think... Um, I don't know about you, but if I've ever asked to do something, but I'm not given a practical way to actually pull it off, <laughs> I can get really frustrated. And I yes. think, uh, our church has this amazing call to evangelize, yep. but because often it's not in our culture, it's not around us, there's not a lot of people teaching on it, that can be kind of frustrating for the, the lay faithful to say, I'm called to do something, but actually I don't know how to do that, yep. I don't know where to begin. And, and that's what the format of the book is, is all about. That's what the, really the purpose of the book is all about, is saying, all right, if someone says, hey, I want, I want to evangelize, I want to respond to this call, but boy, I, have, I don't even know where to get started. Yeah. This book is uh, designed for them in mind. And so it's a 35-day guide. It just walks you through day by day. There's five weeks. I just to allow the reader to really begin to experience was it what's the first step in evangelization and then what does it look like to take the next step and then where does that lead to and, and what are the possibilities for my own life and for my own parish and uh, just start at the at the beginning and give people a vision for what the end could be like as well. Well, let's do that. Let's start at the beginning uh, with the uh, the the idea of encounter. That's the first major segment of the book. What is meant by the word encounter? Yeah, and encounter in this sense is an experience with our Lord that makes a profound impact on our lives. And I think that's one thing is if we call people to evangelize and we just say, hey, you need to share the faith, you need to do this, but they actually haven't encountered the Lord themselves, mm-hmm. then there's going to be a disconnect. There's going to be um, this 
this feeling that, uh, what, what am I going to try to share? How important is it to share? I think this is one of the biggest issues with evangelization, is that many Catholics haven't had this encounter. They haven't had a profound experience with our Lord. It hasn't changed their life, hasn't transformed their life enough for them to say, oh my gosh, you got to experience exactly what I've experienced. My life has changed so much. My life is so much better because of my faith. Yeah. That I want to share that with others. And so that's really the first step of evangelization is not what you do for other people necessarily, but what you allow the Lord to do for you. And so you, you can have that transformation and that you can, you know, eventually get to a point where you go, Hey, I, I've experienced our yeah. Lord in a really amazing way. I want you to experience him as well. Yeah. Uh, do you have any idea why many American Catholics haven't come to the place in their life where they would recognize that they have encountered Jesus? You know, I think um, there's a beautiful part of our Catholic tradition, I think, that works in a lot of great and positive ways for us, but also can be a negative as well. And so I think um, traditionally our Catholic faith has been passed on through the family, and that's a beautiful, beautiful thing for a parent to share their faith uh, through their family, for that to be done through schooling. And so a lot of it is done from, you know, uh, you know, we talk about cradle Catholics, and so I think really have the experience uh, growing up. It's always just been in and around us, but there hasn't been that moment where someone said, "Now, do you want to live out the faith in a, in a deeper way?" Uh, and a lot of our sacrament, sacraments are early on in our life, which are, are beautiful things. We mm-hmm. need that grace early on in our lives, but we haven't been given that moment, that opportunity, and it hasn't really been in our DNA to give people that encounter. And I think that's something that our Protestant brothers and sisters of can really show us that people really do need that experience. They need that choice, they need that opportunity to say, I'm going to plant my flag for Christ in His Church, yeah. and I'm going to live for Him. I'm not just going to have my faith around me or, or you know, a part of my life. It's actually going to be my whole life. And so um, I think there's, yeah, again, that beautiful and richness of passing on the faith through the family that we've have in our, our culture as Catholics, which is great, but I think the, the downside to that is we, we just haven't had those those moments and people to call that to mind of, hey, as adults, as teenagers, we need these moments to, to give our life over to Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Something, I, I, I'm, I'm a former evangelical pastor, and about the time that I realized I was becoming Catholic and had to resign from the, the pastorate, we were in the middle of creating a, a discipleship program, and um, I was excited about it, and when I uh, came into full communion with the Catholic Church, I was also excited about the idea of, and still am, <laughs> about discipleship. Um, but I found that even the language of disciple, the word disciple, was among Catholics, was an unfamiliar word. It wasn't a, a word that they applied to themselves. It, they knew about disciples because they'd hear the texts, uh, you know, at, at Mass. But the, the the self-conscious embracing that one is a disciple uh, sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning who he is, that was not that common. And Matthew Kelly and Sherry Waddell have both done surveys indicating that under 10% of American Catholics um, would identify themselves as uh, intentional disciples or on fire or dynamic, whatever phrase you want to use, to indicate mm-hmm. that one has had that experience of encounter. Have you found that the you you use discipleship language in the book? 
Um, have you found that that is language is alien to many Catholics? I think so. I think a lot of people, as Catholics, would say, "I'm a, I'm a churchgoer. Right. I attend mass. I think uh, that that real intentional following of Jesus, that discipleship, is a bit foreign to Catholics. And I think, um, you know, part of the divide, I think, on evangelization, I think part of the divide on discipleship, has been this culture in the Catholic Church that the religious are the ones that are pursuing yeah. holiness, the yeah. religious are the ones who are sharing the faith, the religious, religious are the ones who are really pursuing Christ in a very deep way. And I think that's a beautiful part about Vatican II in a couple ways here is one, that they really had this universal call to holiness for the laity. And I think that's really um, starting to come alive for mm-hmm. people to understand yeah. that, yeah. hey, just because I'm not religious doesn't mean that I'm not called to the same type of holiness that someone in the religious life is. It just means I, it mean, doesn't mean I'm not called to, called to uh, follow Jesus with all my heart. And right. I think the other thing with Vatican II that opened up so much is really going back to the sources, going back to the early Church Fathers, and even before that, Scripture as the yep. basis of our faith. And so I think that's where this concept of discipleship really shines through, because as you read Scripture, as you look at what it means to follow Jesus, this concept of discipleship really shines as, oh, what does it mean to be a disciple <laughs> of Jesus? Right. And how do I follow after Him? Because that's that's what it's been about from the very beginning, yeah. and uh, that's what we need to rediscover today as well. Well, you, what is the concept of discipleship in first-century Palestinian Judaism? When Jesus uses the word disciple, uh, what does it mean? Yeah, I think um, that's one of the fun things about the book, is these words that we've often used or heard at, at Mass or um, as we've talked about them, we often actually don't know their meaning, or even understanding that Jesus was a teacher, he was a, uh, a rabbi. And what did that mean uh, in first century as well with disciples? So it was very common for um, in Jewish culture uh, for a rabbi to be teaching Scripture. That was really at the heart of Judaism. And as he would teach Scripture, he would take on disciples. And these disciples followed after this rabbi, and they imitated this rabbi when hopes that one day they would become rabbis as well is like the uh, most honored and prime position in all of Judaism is to be a teacher of Scripture, be a teacher mm. of the Torah. And so these disciples wouldn't just learn from the lab- rabbi, they wouldn't just take classes from him, they'd actually live with the rabbi, and they'd be studying the rabbi. How does the rabbi teach Scripture? But also, how does the rabbi bless his food? How does he eat his food? How mm. does he sleep at night? How does he talk to people how does he talk to foreigners? They're, they're really trying to imitate him in everything that he does. And so there became this blessing, kind of a funny blessing. And it was, uh, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. <laughs> and the idea here is that you as a disciple would be following after your rabbi so closely that the dust from his sandals would kick up behind him and cover you as his disciples because you're just in pursuit of your rabbi to study every single uh, thing about him, so you can be like him, so that one day you can be a teacher as well. And I think it's a great image for us, obviously, as Christians, I to love understand that. that when disciples are following after Jesus, they're trying to be like Jesus. They're hoping one day that they can be just like him. And so if we call ourselves disciples, are we pursuing after Jesus with the same intensity? Are we, are we reading the Gospels and, and seeing how does Jesus talk to these people? How does Jesus react when these things happen? What does Jesus do 
when these things occur. And um, I think that's that's been really uh, enlightening for me. Yeah, is just if if I'm going to call myself a disciple, I need to follow Jesus that closely and, and try to imitate him because I'm ultimately called to be like him. I love that. I actually I'd never heard that illustration before. That, that to follow when Jesus says, "Come follow me," he's saying, "Come get dusty." So. <laughs> Yeah, and that, and that was actually, I mean, the, the Hebrew is lekhakarai, which it, 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 it's a huge call, it's a huge imitation. So it's not just, hey, follow me around, or come with me, or like, let's hang out together. Right. It's actually what a rabbi would say to the best of the best of his disciples. So yeah. there's kind of a weeding out process as you'd go through the Jewish culture, and you'd start in kind of like a grammar school, and then go to high school, and then as kind of high schoolers, 13, 14, 15 years old, a rabbi would call you. Uh, and that's a, a deep call to be like the rabbi. So it's a really a significant thing that, that Jesus calls his disciples to follow after him. Kevin, can you stay with me a little longer? I'd love to. Kevin Cotter, my guest. This is a magnificent book. It's called Called. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. And with me is Kevin Cotter. He is the author of Called. Becoming an Everyday Disciple in a Post-Christian World. It's a five-week guide. It is really uh, very, very practical. And this this guide here is uh, an outstanding way uh, to kind of begin to reorganize one's life and one's thinking to be a faithful disciple of Jesus, which also means sharing Jesus and sharing the truth of the gospel with people in the past, I've found, Kevin, um, both with Catholics and non-Catholics, that when we talk the language of come follow me, Jesus saying come follow me, being a disciple of Jesus, people feel that that's above them, that that's, that's a bridge too far. They're, too, they're inadequate. They, how could they possibly? They need to get their life together before they come and follow Jesus. What do you say? Yeah, I think that's something we look at um, in the first first uh, week of the book is a certain sense that these disciples are, are called to follow Jesus, and they have a lot of trepidation. I think Peter's a great um, example of this. Jesus calls him, in one version of the Gospel, um, he falls after Jesus right away. But then another version, he says, you depart from me, for I am a sinful man. That's right. Luke's version. Yeah. And so right away, Peter's saying, Lord, I, like, I'm, I'm not valuable enough to be like you, to be a disciple and to fall after a rabbi. And to, um, like, that's nuts. You don't, you don't know who I am, Jesus. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm sinful. Uh, and just depart from me. Like, just leave. I'm not going to follow you. Just, just get out of here. And yet Jesus still says, nope. You're supposed to call. You're supposed to follow me. And then, actually, no. You're actually supposed to become the leader of of this church. Um, if anyone is supposed to be like the rabbi, it's it's you. I'm putting you in charge. <laughs> and so, I think there's a certain sense of um, it's always true in the gospel. It's always true in the gospel that Jesus gives this radical call to follow after him, to be like him, and then he also makes it practical and realistic. And so, I think that's what I I try to capture with the book. It's really just trying to capture Jesus ultimately of that. Yeah that sense of, yeah, it's a radical call. It's going to be so challenging. And yet Jesus, Jesus through his grace, through the sacraments, through um, the Holy Spirit, 
allows us to do it as well. You've got, uh, I, I should just point out, the book, too, is filled with illustrations from uh, lives of biblical figures uh, as well as uh, the saints, and uh, you, you're looking for models and examples through this, illustrations in the lives of others. Um, day five of the book is about wounds and healing, and you use the example of Bartimaeus. Uh, why don't you go ahead and take us uh, through this idea of the healing that uh, is related to uh, becoming whole, becoming a, a follower of Jesus? Yeah, I think, um, you know, that part of that inadequacy is just, uh, I, I can't be like you, Jesus, but I think as we keep exploring that, as we keep encountering him, we ultimately are faced with our own uh, wounds in life. We uh, are faced with things that um, plague us. Maybe they're from our childhood. Maybe they're from our adulthood. Whatever they may be, we just say, Lord, I I am just, I'm not whole. I'm not um, complete. I'm not, I'm not healthy. I can't follow you. And so um, sometimes we want to take those things and say, I can't follow Jesus. But really, Jesus wants to use those things to help us follow after him. He actually wants to show us, just like Jesus shows us his wounds, at the resurrection, um, you know, Christ wants us to show us, for us to show uh, our wounds to him as well. And I think Bartimaeus is a great example of that, as you mentioned, from chapter 5 of the book. Um, most of these chapters are about the length of, they're about a thousand words, yep. kind of a short blog yeah. post. And so this yeah. one's on, um, on Bartimaeus, and I, I love he's a blind, blind man uh, by the side of the road, and he hears Jesus is that coming to me, he calls out to Jesus, and... Um, Eventually, he throws off his mantle and springs up and comes uh, to Jesus. What I love about Bartimaeus is just his his courage. Uh, people tell him to be quiet, um, but he throws off his mantle. His mantle is his whole livelihood. When you're blind, especially in that culture, um, the only thing that you have as a, as a beggar, as a blind beggar, is that mantle. That's where you collect all of your alms. That's where you, you sleep with. So the fact that Bartimaeus throws it off. He's basically saying, I believe so much that this man can heal me that I'm not going to need this anymore. So Bartimaeus has just this amazing faith, uh, and he has um, to, to have, have sight as well. Um, and so I think just for us and our wounds, I think um, many times we, we struggle with these things, but it's important to have that faith of Bartimaeus to, to give them over to our Lord, to have that courage to say, I'm running after you and that I believe that you can heal yeah. uh, me as well. Yeah. And so just that courage to ask, that courage to keep asking uh, is so huge because uh, uh, the Lord, the, the great physician, wants to make us whole. And as we encounter him, um, he's going to encounter us in our wounds. We really can't escape it. We can try to act perfect and um, have everything together, but it's really actually this amazing experience to give ourselves over to the Lord and show, show ourselves to him and, and everything, warts and all. Yeah. You know, this question of identity is is uh, vital. Uh, there are some people who so are so closely identified with their wounds that they can't imagine who they would be without them. And um, they've got to come to that place uh, where the real question is, do you want to be healed? Uh, are you willing to have this change of identity? Um, there's another type of person, too, not the one who is overtly uh, needy or, you know, obviously hurt uh, in exhibiting woundedness, but there are those who actually believe they really have it together. 
and they're, they have a mm-hmm. different type of, they're not attached to their woundedness, they're attached to their vision of uh, the great man, or <laughs> of what it means to have it all together. Uh, how does Jesus confront, that we see, of course, the rich young ruler is one example here. Uh, how do you go about uh, deciding if you're one of the wounded ones or if you're one of the proud ones? <laughs> I think that's a, a great question. I love the example of the rich young man, but I, I think... Um, you know, a lot of things stand out to me, and I think that's what encounters so important. If we think we have everything all together, if we think we can do it on our own, chances are we're not going to evangelize very right. well. Because if we haven't experienced Jesus ourselves, we're not willing to give that to others. If we just kind of try to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, then we'd probably just recommend that to others. Like, hey, just get your stuff together. Do better. Find the right habit. Um, virtue and habit, they're, they're all great things through our Lord, but um, ultimately we we all are in that boat of we all don't have it together. No matter if you think uh, you do have it all together, no matter if you, your life is very successful and you have everything you, you wanted, at some point in time, uh, through your sin, through your woundedness, whatever way it comes, you need our Lord. And so I think that's that's where, um, you know, St. Therese, one of the greatest saints of the Church, constantly talked about her need for the Lord, constantly mm-hmm. talked about her need for a Savior, and I think that's why she was so powerful. That's why she actually achieved sainthood, is because she showed our Lord her weaknesses and asked Him to come into those. So I think this is really at the heart of evangelization. Um, and I think at one point in time, our Lord says, you know, um, she, she was able to love much because she'd been forgiven much. Yes. And I think that's very true of us as well. We The more we're able to receive God's forgiveness, um, the, the more we're able to love others and share him with others as well. Um, Jesus is often uh, identified as the one, right? I mean, he describes himself as the the shepherd who goes after the one sheep uh, leaving the 99. He's kind of an anti-statistical in this this idea, you know. Hmm. He he goes after those who are marginalized, those who are sidelined. He's the one at a party who would sit down with the the person who's not at the center of things. Um, And uh, talk to me a little bit about the degree to which that helps us um, do the work of evangelization, but also reminds us of uh, Jesus' own um, willingness to embrace those who are not mainstream. Yeah, I think this is probably, you know, for you talked about the, the amount of intentional disciples or faithful disciples in the church today, and, we're, you know, we're blessed in America to see a lot of faithful movements, a lot of faithful groups, a lot of renewal, and just um, really been tremendous over the last few decades, a lot of, um, you know, Protestants like yourself who have, have converted. I mean, just well, what an amazing thing, and like a lot of uh, foreign bishops and cardinals who come to America are just really wowed by the renewal and the faith that's going on in our church. But in the book, and, and one area that I love to challenge Catholics today, because I see it in my own life, I see it in my parish that's very alive and, and faithful, is that we have this tendency to have this kind of hot tub Catholicism, this kind of closed group where we say, hey, it's, yeah. it's all just about us, and let's let's live out the faith really well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's make sure we're all really good friends with one another, and we have great fellowship, and that's so necessary, and it's so important to raise kids in that environment, so mm-hmm. important for one another have fellowship. But Jesus is very clear in the Gospels that if we are not reaching out, 
if we're not seeking after the lost, then ultimately we're not sharing in his identity. Ultimately, we're not sharing in his vision for the world. And I think a lot of times as Catholics, because the world can be so difficult to live in, because um, our faith seems under attack so much, we tend to settle for this this uh, hot tub Catholicism where it's just me and my Catholic friends. Right. And I would really encourage people, and I do this through the book, is to share in Jesus' vision for the whole world, because he wants to save everybody in your neighborhood, he wants to save everyone in your city, he wants to save everyone in your country, he wants to save everyone in the world, and that's his heart. And so if we don't share in our Lord's heart, we end up being like the older son in the story of the prodigal son, the son who never left home, who's always with his father, but didn't understand his father's vision for the world, didn't understand that his father was willing to help rescue the younger son that was willing to come back. And ultimately, that older son finds himself outside the house. He's actually outside of his father's house, which is a, a very deep symbolism for him not hmm. being having eternal life. Yeah. And so I think um, I realize how difficult it is to live out our faith in a post-Christian world. But as we look at, as we turn back to the early church, as we look at Jesus and his disciples— they lived in a very toxic um, world that was very against the gospel, and yet it was very clear that they were supposed to go out and share their faith with others and, um, and, and to, to do that, that they weren't called to just have a holy huddle and stay in the upper room, yeah. but to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to share their faith and to help see conversions of people that were completely not like them, that were completely yeah. outside the church. And um, I can't imagine that we aren't called to do that today as well, uh, right. despite our situation and what we face. Yeah, it, it, in some sense, we're called to keep some bad company. So, <laughs> hold, mm-hmm. hold. Kevin, can you stay another segment? Sure, absolutely. Now, Kevin Cotter, my guest, we're going to continue talking about becoming an everyday disciple. He's written an outstanding uh, book on this. It's actually uh, laid out with daily, uh, about a thousand word uh instruction, reading, uh, reflection, uh, it's filled with great illustrations. And again, uh, it's simply called Called. I'm Al Crestle. We'll be right back. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is Kevin Cotter. Kevin is the uh, author, uh, most recently, of a book entitled Called. It's um, a guide to becoming an everyday disciple. Uh, It extends five weeks, and uh, that's enough time, a five-week period is enough time to begin to develop some new habits, Uh, and that's very important in becoming a faithful disciple. Uh, to develop some new habits. Again, I, I want to come back to this idea of so many people feeling inadequate to be disciples. The, I mean, you've heard it, I'm sure. I've heard it. People saying, I don't pray enough. I don't love enough. Um, you know, I don't read Scripture enough. Uh, I don't spend time in front of the Blessed Sacrament enough. There's this constant feeling of being um, not quite good enough but that can be spiritually debilitating. Uh, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that we are spurred on to better better things. It can also be 
a habit of self-understanding which keeps us from growing. Uh, tell us a little bit about that chronic sense of not good enough. Yeah, I think this is um, definitely something that plagues Catholics all the time. They just say, I don't, I don't know enough. There's so much in the Catholic Church that I need to know. Yeah. There's so much that I don't know how to do. I think that's where you just have to start in really simple ways to help build up great habits. I think one of the best ways is prayer. And as you mentioned, the book is 35 days. That's a little bit over 30 days. And that's typically the right amount to start a habit. And yeah. so um, just by saying, hey, I'm going to spend 10 minutes every day reading a book. I'm really into uh, how to create habits in your life because I think once you understand how to create a habit, um, it becomes much easier. You can build it. You build a lot of confidence of what you can do. And so even just to set aside 10 minutes for prayer, you don't yep. have to have a whole holy hour at first if that's not where you're at. Right. Uh, you don't have to go out on the streets, on the street corners and, and preach to other people, but just to say, hey, I'm going to read 10 minutes every day and that's what I'm going to do for the next six months. Awesome. The Lord loves that. He, that's, that's exactly what we want to do. And I think what we need to ask ourselves as Catholics is, what are the small steps I can take? Then how can we keep asking the Lord, what, what more do you have for me? What more do you have? What more do you have? And that's typically how great things happen. They don't happen instantaneously. They don't happen in a moment's notice. They happen over time as the Lord builds and works on our hearts. He builds up grace. He asks us to go deeper and deeper and deeper, and that's how we really get to a place where we can uh, oftentimes share the faith or get more confident in the faith. And so um, some of the hardest parts of anything is just to start. That's why I say with my own book is the hardest part is just starting. And so just start with day one. Just tell yourself, this is what I'm doing. I'm going to get going. And uh, I think that that's really half the battle. If you had to, if you had to just uh, create a topic sentence or a billboard or something like that, what would your advice be uh, to the church that lives in this, which really is now a post-Christian culture? Hmm. I think it would be be radical. Yeah, that's good. Um, and not yeah. in the sense of um, I like that. be outlandish or, or crazy, but that we're called to be radical. The, the Christians in the early church and the Roman Empire looked crazy. Yep. I mean, they were just, they were not thought of, thought well of. They were often dismissed by their families. They were uh, made fun of in society. And I think we just need to realize if we uh, possess what we possess in our Lord and in our church, the great gifts that we have, people are going to think we're, we're really outlandish. But I think we just need to, to own that and to, to be okay with that and to realize that's actually, that is the gospel. And that's how the Lord is I think testing us and refining us and saying, do you really love me? Or is it just that you love the things of me? Did you just love, um, you know, being kind? Did you just love the idea of doing good for others? Or did you really love me, your mm -hmm. Savior, mm -hmm. the one that calls you to something deeper? What did you really love? And I think now is a, is a, is a beautiful moment for Catholics to make that decision and to face that decision and to say, what, what do I really love? Do I come to, to, to church because it's good people doing good things and makes me feel good? Or is it because I believe in our Lord who's behind this church, who founded this church and is calling me to something that the, the world really doesn't understand? Right. It goes beyond just doing nice things and, and goes to a, a belief and a faith and a, something beyond this world um, that calls us to something more. What advice do you have to uh, Catholics who right now are laboring under the uh, the burden of scandal and who 
in a sense they've they've had to they've had to die to their vision uh of the church um that would bring force to come to grips with some ugly realities and uh they never thought they'd have to deal with stuff like this before uh people can be not merely disappointed but there are people I'm running across who are actually discouraged and they feel as though um it's hard to motivate themselves uh, because, quote, the church isn't what it ought to be. What advice do you have? You know, I think the the first thing it's would I would say was just I'm I'm with you. I'm I'm yeah. frustrated. I'm discouraged. I'm you know I think I I'm in the same boat as you. And at the same time, although I share those emotions, I would really look at um, this idea that I think anybody who's been in the church for a good good period of time has always known that we need renewal and continually need renewal. And so there's there's been things over the last few months have been shocking. Uh, they've been, uh, have a greater depth than probably many people thought. But I think we always yeah. had this sense that our, our church needed more renewal, and it, we're seeing great glimpses of it over the last few decades, as I mentioned. But um, there's there's some deeper uh, cleansing that we need to go through, and there's some deeper renewal that we need to experience. And if we look through the history of the church, that has really come from a, a hierarchy or authority or the powers, so to speak, at B. It usually comes from people, uh, usually comes from the saints. That's how our church changes. That's how our church renews. You think of someone like St. Francis of Assisi, who lived in a small town in Italy, who was, what, a teenager in his early 20s when he decided to radically fall after the Lord. Mm-hmm. And he brings renewal to the church in a way that no, um, you know, papal encyclical or pope or church uh, bishop or cardinal at the time could have done with all of their power uh, combined together. And I think as the lady, as you mentioned at the beginning of this segment, really have to realize, boy, now is our moment. Now yeah. is our chance to say, we're going to step up. We're going to help renew the church. And that's where I think um, really trying to make that change on a local level in our parishes and to say, well, you know what? My parish is going to be amazing. And I'm, I'm going yes. to try to make this an amazing place. And I, I'm going to do what I can do in my own family and in my own circle of influence uh, to bring about change, because that's that's what's ultimately going to lead to the renewal of our church. And that's what's going to bring about our own holiness as well. Um, if we wait on uh, others to do it, uh, I, I think we'll be disappointed until uh, uh, till we're no longer here on this earth. Yeah, yeah. When people ask you, what is the gospel? Um, they're probably thinking that you're going to go deep into various areas of theology. But I know that uh, you've got a fairly direct and simple way of presenting uh, the gospel. Tell us how you break it down. Yeah, you know, I think that's something that, again, that uh, our Protestant brothers and sisters do so well. And as Catholics, we we can make things so complicated that— you know, it becomes difficult to explain to you the even basic and simple things of our faith. Things like, well, what did Jesus do for us, or how are we saved? We we have a hard time as Catholics. I think the average Catholic in the pew wouldn't have um, an easy response, or they'd say, "I'm not quite sure," or the responses would be different. Um, and so, I think it's really important that if we are going to have this experience and this counter, that the Lord has saved me from from mm-hmm. from death from. Uh, the pains of hell, uh, that we that we really understand that and know that, we should be able to articulate that. Because if we can articulate that, if we can understand that, then we actually understand how we encounter Jesus and how he helps us. And so in the book, um, I just have a five 
five-step process, and it's similar to, to others out there, but I think it, it can help uh, us just articulate and understand that salvation that he provides. So step one is just making sure that we understand that from the very beginning, God made us for, for a relationship. He wanted a relationship with us in the beginning with Adam and Eve. He was in a relationship with them. He was their father. He wants that relationship for all of us. Um, but despite that, that's where we get to step two, is that our relationship with him is broken. Mm-hmm. We all experience this, this brokenness in our world because as we contemplate God being our father, as we contemplate God bonding being this relationship, a lot of us say, well, it doesn't really feel like that to me. And that's because sin has come into the world. And so we all have this longing for this relationship with God, the very uh, depths of our being. I really believe that we all have a longing for this fatherhood, mm-hmm. but that we also know that there's this brokenness. And so we realize through sin, brokenness has occurred. And so the question is, how do we solve this brokenness? And that's where we get to step three. We have this divide through sin that can't be bridged by um, really any means. There's nothing that we can do to bridge that gap and to overcome this brokenness outside of Jesus. And that's where Jesus steps in, and Jesus is the answer. He's the one that bridges the divide. So St. Catherine of Siena had this beautiful image um, from some of her conversations with Jesus. Um, and as a, as a church father, uh, not a church father, as a church doctor, she talked about Jesus' cross as actually providing a bridge mm, uh, in mm-hmm, this gap. So if mm-hmm. you can imagine this, really this immeasurable gap that cannot be filled by us, Jesus' cross kind of lands in that gap and provides uh, a bridge for us. So that's how Jesus' cross, he actually bridges the divide uh, of sin that we cannot. Yeah. And so we're left, and this is where we get to step four, as Jesus bridges that divide, he's done that for us, but we have a choice to make. Uh, we start that choice with our baptism as Catholics, but we really need to uh, live out that choice. We need to say, am I going to actually cross that bridge? Am I going to make, the, am I gonna make Jesus the center of my life? Am I really going to plant that, that flag for him? And that's our fourth step in, in helping people realize Jesus has saved us, but we have a part in this. Like a gift that's been given us, we have to actually unwrap it and use it. We can't just... Uh, just be given it, the, the Lord wants us to, to accept it as well. Mm-hmm. So that's step four. And then finally, step five is, is we live out this relationship with Jesus in the church and through the Holy Spirit. Um, and so I think, um, as we were talking about earlier, as I'm kind of reflecting on these five steps, a lot of Catholics kind of have always existed in their minds, at least, on step five, living out this relationship with Jesus and the church, and they actually haven't experienced the other steps. They haven't experienced or really contemplated the brokenness of sin and the gap that, that Jesus gives through his cross. And right. so they, if they haven't gone through those moments, they haven't made that decision, um, then they can be left in the church thinking, oh yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm saved, I'm in the church, which is in some ways very true, but that decision for Jesus is so important that we experience his love, we experience yes. what would happen with sin in, in our lives and without Jesus, but what the what difference that Jesus makes to help save us uh, and for us to make that choice, I think, is is really, really crucial. We've got just about 45 seconds left, uh, Kevin. So I'm, I'm just going to ask you, again, to reiterate why this becoming an everyday disciple is so vital. You know, um, Pope Paul VI basically says this. He says, if, if we don't share our faith, it's, a, it's possibly a sign that we don't actually have it. Mm. And so I think um, evangelization isn't something that's a nice hobby for some, or it's a, an area of interest for others in the Church. It's actually something that if we don't share our faith, I believe we're, we're ultimately going to lose it. If our faith isn't worth sharing, if we're not excited about it enough that we wouldn't want to tell 
our friends, our neighbors, or our coworkers about it, that's probably a sign that we haven't really encountered Jesus in our life. Right. And so I think evangelization is just a great test for all of us is to realize um, we need to encounter the Lord more deeply and we need to make sure we share him with others as well. Very good. Kevin, thank you so much. Great making your acquaintance. Uh, Let's talk again, okay? Appreciate that, Al. Thanks for having me on the show today.